How quickly do you go to the doctor when you have a pain? How quickly do you go to the doctor when you have a pain? I've heard that women tend to go earlier and that men tend to go later and that farming men in particular tend to put it off altogether. They soldier on in spite of uh, the pains that they have, in, in spite of the signs that there's something wrong. They uh, soldier on. Well, in our last talk, we saw that the signs that God has given us show that not everything is right between our world and God, between the nation of Israel and God. What happens when you ignore these signs? Well, things get worse. Things get worse. People may think that you can ignore God and, and that, that's that. But it's not the case. Belief in God is not just a matter of personal opinion. I can believe it and that's all that's going to happen to me. You may choose to believe it and that will affect what's going to happen to you. No, whether we believe it or not, what God does is what God will do. And if you ignore the signs that God gives, it will get worse for you. In this chapter of Joel, Joel chapter 2, we, we come face to face with the anger of God. In chapter 1, it's promised to come and there's this forerunning sign of the locusts bringing it. But in chapter 1, we're going to get a taste of what it means to, to be subject to God's anger. And that's our first reading now. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 to 11.
Now, there's a description of a judgment. And who is he speaking about? Look in verse 3. It's, it seems to be the locusts again. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind a desert waste. That sort of sounds like the locusts that we were looking at before as they came and stripped all the branches back to, to, to white, uh, stripping off even the bark. But it seems to be more than just locusts this time. Look at verses five, uh, 4, 5 and 7. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops. And then seven, they charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. You see here, it's, it's sort of like the locust sometimes, what he's talking about. But at other times, well, it, it sounds like a human army. But notice how he says it, it's like a human army. Now, what we're talking about here is not locusts, and we're not talking about a human army necessarily, though it may include that, and it may include locusts. We're actually talking about the Lord's army. We're talking about the Lord's army. Look at verse 1, halfway through it. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Or in verse 11, the Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? You see, if you reject God, you get God coming with his army. And as I said, it, it may be locusts, but it's bigger than locusts. It may be a human army, but it's bigger than a human army. This is the army of God. This is the judgment of God. In fact, I was going to say that that this was the judgment of God, but it's more than that because it's the anger of God. It's God at the, the head of it. When God comes to judge, he's at the head of, of his judgment. He's the one speed charging the lead. And what we're going to do now is to just look at these verses and actually uh, do the unpleasant task of seeing what it's like to be subject to the wrath of God. This is what the prophet does here. He spells it out verse after verse. This is what it means to be under God's judgment. This is what it means. So let's have a look at these. He does it in terms of, as I said, the, the locust, but also mixing it with army metaphors to describe what it is like. Now the first thing we see here is that when God punishes and God brings this final time of judgment, it's devastation. Look at verse 3. Before them the fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes. When God brings his judgment, the day when, when God calls us all to account, it's devastating. You can see where it's been. And some will stand and some will fall. Or in verse 4, we see that when God punishes it's like it's being overpowered by the presence of the Lord. Look in verse 4. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop like cavalry. Now, I assume that some amongst us here would be familiar with horses, but horses are big, aren't they? You get a horse charging at you. That is overpowering. I remember my children being scared of dogs 
And I was always saying to him, don't be scared of dogs. You know, don't be scared. You've got to get used to dogs. But my, my son, he was only this big. And the dog he was looking at was that big too. And so the dog weighed more than my son and it's, it's like having a head that big of some creature with huge teeth right in front of you. It was a scary thing for my son. He knew that if the dog wanted to even playfully just get up and stand on him, he would just overpower him and knock him down. And, they, and in the army, as uh, the, in previous generations, if the infantry met the cavalry, the cavalry won, generally, because they would just charge the infantry down. They would just trample them underfoot. And that's what it's like. You see, some people think, well, I can put God off. It's not going to matter. But I'm telling you that when you face God in his wrath, he will knock you down. He will knock you down as you would be knocked down by a horse charging at you. Look in verse 5. With a noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountains, the mountaintops, like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. He, now, mountains are really useful things for countries because they tend to divide off regions, don't they? If you've got an army or a nation that's hostile to you but there's a big mountain range between you, they can still get around but it takes a lot of effort. And so mountains have often divided nations. They're one of those helpful things that get in the way to slow people down. But what do these ones do? They just jump across the top. There's nothing you can do to stop God's judgment when it comes. When the time comes for you to stand before God and give an account of your life, you can't avoid it. Nothing stands in its way. You can't slow it down. You can't put it off because it's just like horses jumping over the tops of mountains. It's going to come and sweep you up. Or in verse 6, At the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. People may speak bold and arrogant words against God now, but they won't be saying that when they face God. When they face God there, it will be cursing themselves and they will have given up hope. I remember as a young, uh, young boy, we used to go up to the Blue Mountains in Sydney and uh, there's this river section of the Blue Mountains, fairly stagnant water. I don't know how healthy it was to swim in, but it was this, this water there up in the Blue Mountains and we would go up there and we'd throw bottles into the water and then chase them and follow the bubbles down. And, um, and I remember going down after this bottle once and you know, you're going down, down, down and getting the bottle and then swimming up and your lungs are bursting because you've gone down too far and you'd finally get up. But, but when, you, when you stand before God and you've rejected him, it's like being under that water and you're coming up and you're coming up but your foot is caught. And even though your lungs are bursting, there is no hope. You've rejected God and now is the time of the day of the Lord in your life. See verses 8 and 9. Everything is engulfed by it. They jostle with each other, each marching ahead. They plunge through defences without breaking ranks. They rush on the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses. Like thieves, they enter through the windows. It's almost like, I don't know if you've seen a movie or something where someone's there and cockroaches are just swarming all over them and you just can't get away from them because they're just swarming. It's that type of thing of being engulfed by them. Verse 10, Before them the earth shakes, the sky trembles, the sun and moon are darkened, the stars no longer shine. 
The world's falling apart. In fact, your world will fall apart. That's what he's saying. The world around you will fall apart. This is God at the head of his army. When God brings his judgment on our world, you can't ignore it. You can't escape it. Now, this is the way the Old Testament describes hell. This is an Old Testament description of hell in all its wrath. I think we're familiar with the idea of shadows and copies. So Hebrews chapter 10 talks about shadows and copies, the law being a shadow. Uh, Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 and 17 talks about the shadows and copies of the Old Testament as well. We often think of the shadows and copies in terms of the sacrifice of Jesus. There were the animals that were sacrificed and there was a shadow and a copy of Jesus and what he's done. But here we see that, that this picture that God puts before us, this is a shadow and a copy of hell, of the day that God judges. And so when we read this, we're connecting up the words that Jesus speaks and the apostles speak about hell. We're connecting this all the way through the prophets. Now, th- these are hard words. These are hard words indeed. And I want to ask the question, who actually has the right to punish you? Who has the right to punish you? See, do parents have the right to punish their children? Some people would say yes. Some people would say no. And uh, and children are taught different things from different people about that. What what about the government? Does the government have the right to punish you for your behaviour? Again, some people would say yes. The government should be doing that. Other people, though, would be saying, and this would be some of our our major, an emerging political party, would be saying that, no, the government actually doesn't have the right to punish you. That prison is just to reform you. Now, in Christianity, we believe in redemption, and so we certainly believe that reforming people and redeeming people's lives should be part of the prison system. But does the government actually have a right to punish you beyond just rehabilitating you? Some would say yes, some would say no. I think that for many people in our society, they would say that really no one has the right to punish them. That I'm my own person and uh, it's up to me. It's it's just my thing and nobody really can punish me. But God does. It's not just that God will judge you, God will punish you. God will give you, call you to account for your life and give you what you deserve. We're happy for God to use his great power to do nice things for us. We're happy when God uses his great power to do nice things. In fact, we almost command God that that is all he does. That is all he is to do if we're to find him acceptable. But who are we, the creation, to tell God what he is to do? God not only uses his power to sustain and bless, God also uses his power to punish. And we need to understand that. I remember when the tsunami happened, there were some letters to the editor where it was suggested that the tsunami may well be a judgment from God that we need to consider. And people wrote in and just said, well, if that's what God's like, 
I don't want anything to do with him. You see, people don't like the idea that God can punish his creation. But this part of the Bible is making it very clear that the Lord is at the head and he brings his judgment when he will bring it. And this is the teaching on hell that Jesus himself brought. And this is what it meant for Israel. If they turned away from God, this was their future. And this is what it means for us as well, if we turn away from God, that the anger of God is what we'll face. We're going to have our second reading now from chapter 2, verses 17, uh, 12 to 17. Thanks, Chris. Well, here we see a similar section to chapter 1 with its call to repentance. It calls for fasting, mourning and tears, which we've seen already, realising that what we've done is wrong. Maybe God will stop. There is this urgent calling out for God, isn't there? To do this urgently. And you see the urgency of it. Look in verse 16. Uh, blow, 15. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly... Bring together the elders. Now, I can sort of understand that. Get all the elders together in the community. And this has got to be a very serious thing. We need all the elders to get together. But he's saying it's more than that. He's saying you've got to get all the children together. The children have got to be involved in this turning to God. He even talks about the, the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. This is in that culture before the wedding. The bride and the groom would be in separate chambers, separate rooms, and they'd come out together at, the same, at a particular time. And he's saying he let them leave that. So what would you stop a wedding for? Someone just came in, one of your children or grandchildren was having a wedding and someone said, we've got to stop it for this reason. It would want to be a good reason, wouldn't it, if they came in and did that at one of the weddings you're attending. People wouldn't appreciate it if it wasn't a good reason. And what this is saying is that sorting out your life with God is a very good reason to put off everything, even the things you think you would never interrupt the things that you think you can never put off. There are some things in our life that we, we do wait for, that we do put off. I know myself, I've got a library uh, with a whole range of books in it. I've only read half of them. 
Have you done that where you've seen a book and you go, well, that's a really good book. I like that book. So you buy this book. And you go, oh, that's a great book. Look, you can just in the catalogue. You'll get that one as well. And you're busy. You're running around. You just don't get time to read all these books. So I've got all these great books at home, which I still think are great books, but I just haven't read them. And you can put it off. I remember when I lived up in Sydney, uh, I used to catch the train out uh, from Sydney to Penrith. And as you drive along on the train, you look out the window and there's all these houses that back onto the train line. And there was this one house I remember driving past. And, and you may know someone like this. Maybe you are someone like this. I don't know. I'm not meaning to have a go at you. But the man in this house, he would just gather fridges and cars and somebody might have done a tiling job and there was just half a pallet of tiles left. And so he'd bring that to his house. And in his backyard, it was full of bricks, completely overgrown with grass. You couldn't get the bricks out anymore. There was a, a car with the engine taken out. The engine hadn't been put back in. And there was just all these bits and pieces in this backyard. And I remember he had a big backyard and he'd filled it up with all these things. And he was putting them off for another day. And who knows, maybe he did uh, actually get to complete them all. Now, that's how we can think about God, that we can put him off. That he's like the stack of bricks out the back, gathering, uh, growing, uh, with the grass growing over it. But no, no, God, here it's saying, God is much more urgent than that. It's the type of thing you'd cancel the wedding for. Uh, you know, if you had a car accident, you, you've got to do something there and then. You can't say, well, I just had a car accident. Oh, I just won't worry about it now. No, no, you've got to do something there and then. This is how we need to treat God. God can't wait. Getting our lives sorted out with God can't wait. Now, what happens to Israel if they actually take this advice and turn back to God and repent? Well, that's what we're going to read here in our final reading. Chapter 2, verses 18 to 32.
So here we see that it's a great section, isn't it, about blessing and the blessing that will come to Israel. But on what condition does the blessing come? It's if Israel repents. We were just before looking at this chapter which spoke about repentance and taking God seriously and dealing with the urgency of God. And then it says in verse 18, Then the Lord will be jealous for the land and take pity on his people. And the Lord will reply to them, I am sending you new grain and wine. And, and as you go through that list, these are all the blessings of the covenant that God had promised. So there's the, the new wine, the grain uh, and the oil in verse 19. In verse 20, we're told that the invader will be removed. In verse 22, even the wild animals, that is the rest of creation, is going to enjoy these blessings. There's going to be regular rain. There's going to be plenty to eat and the praising of God. And there's going to be the knowing of God. God will be there with them in verse 20. Then you will know that I am in Israel and I am the Lord your God. And there is no other. And there is no other. Never again will my people be ashamed. Now this is how the Old Testament describes heaven. This is how it describes heaven or the kingdom of God. It's all of creation being in harmony. It's living under the blessing of God, being in the kingdom of God as the way it should be. But again, how does it come? How does the blessing of this kingdom come? Well, it's through genuine repentance, through real obedience to God. And that gives us all a problem. You see, for Israel, they never really turn to God. God judges them with the exile. They go out to Babylon. After Babylon, they come back to the land. And what do they do? If you read the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, what do they do? They continue to trade on the Sabbath. They continue to intermarry. They continue to do all the things they did beforehand. And so Israel never really repents. They never repent. And this is the problem that God is ready to bless but his people need to repent. And, and this is, of course, not just a problem for Israel. This is a problem for us all. Who of us, by our good works, can say, I am worthy? Who of us, by our good works, can say, I have repented and am walking in the ways of the Lord? We all sin. We all fail. And so we have this promise put before us in Joel chapter, uh, 11 to 17 that if we turn to the Lord... In repentance, God will bless. But we've got this problem that Israel doesn't return and we know from ourselves that we fail to turn and serve God as we should as well. 
But the chapter doesn't finish there. Because God has actually got something that he's going to do. Looking halfway through verse 32. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance. There's going to be a deliverance that God's going to bring. There's going to be survivors. There's going to be something that God's going to do that's going to fix this problem. Yes, Israel can't repent. Yes, we don't repent the way we should. That means we receive the judgment of God. But the blessing of God will come through this deliverance that God's going to bring. Look at verse 28. We, we see how this is introduced for us. And afterwards I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Now why is he pouring out the spirit on, on his people here? Well, it's because to receive the Spirit like this would make you a prophet. And that's what it talks about, isn't it? That they're going to be ones who are prophesying and having dreams and seeing visions. And so the Spirit of God is going to be poured out so that there are a whole lot of prophets. Joel would have been one amongst only a few prophets of his day. We don't know of all the prophets who existed at that time. But there would have just been a few of them and they would have travelled around Israel and Judah preaching God's message and calling people to repent. But what we have here is everyone becoming a prophet. This is what God's going to do. He's going to pour out his spirit so that everyone is going to be a prophet. Now, why so many prophets? Why so many prophets? Well, it's because many prophets can do what a few prophets can't. The message that God's going to be speaking this time, the call to repentance that's going to be happening this time has got to go to a much bigger audience this just isn't people receiving the spirit to go and preach just around Israel and Judah like Joel was doing now this is all of God's people receiving the spirit so that they can go and call people to repentance the message that God's speaking here is a message that's going to go to the world that's why he needs all these prophets everyone's got to get involved in this one the young men the old men, the young women, the old women, the slaves, the free, everyone, all of God's people, you're all going to have to get involved with this because this message that God is sending out is going to the whole world. This is the final message as we see there. Um, it's the final message in verse 31 before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. This is the final message that God's sending to the whole world before his judgment day. But the question I had was, what is the use of doing this again? Why do it again? Israel did have prophets and they weren't able to turn the people from sin. Why make more prophets just to do this around the world? Isn't it going to be the same history working itself out again? Well, no, because this time it's certainly going to be a call to repentance. But this time the message that goes to Israel and the world is going to be more than that. You see, the prophets of the Old Testament, what did they prophesy? Well, it's good to look at, I think, the last one, uh, John the Baptist, who's the last of the prophets of the Old Testament. And we read of John's message in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, John, uh, in Matthew chapter 3, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So he's talking about God's coming kingdom, 
He talks about God's judgment, doesn't he? When he saw uh, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming who were uh, where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? You see, it's exactly the same message as Joel. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. The axe is already at the root of the tree and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, John's really preaching what Joel preached, isn't he? You repent and you will live. You don't repent, you're not going to. But as I said, the message that Joel spoke also said that God is going to bring a new message, one to go to the whole world, one before the final day. And we see this with the truly repentant Israelite. You see, what did God promise? God promised that if you repent, you will receive my blessing. And this is actually what we see with Jesus. Look in verse th- uh, Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptised by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptised by you and you come to me. Jesus replied, let it be so now. Uh, It is proper for us to do this in order to fulfil all righteousness. You see, Jesus comes as repentant Israel. He didn't have to be baptised for the forgiveness of sins. But he did in order to associate himself with the Israelites. And when he was undergoing that baptism, the voice came from heaven. As soon as Jesus was baptised and went up out of the water, at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. You see, if you or I were there, going to the, the baptism of John... We wouldn't have heard those words, you are my son, today. with you I am pleased. We would have heard, turn back to God or you'll be consumed in his judgment. That's That's the word of God that would have come to us through John. But when Jesus comes, it's a different word. It's saying, this is my son. This is the one I'm actually pleased with. That is, Jesus is the truly repentant, obedient servant of the Lord. He is the true Israel and we see that when he goes into the desert and he's tempted in all the ways that Israel was tempted. Israel was tempted for 40 years. Jesus is then tempted for 40 days and he's tempted with all these temptations and he answers each time as repentant Israel should have responded from the book of Deuteronomy. And each time he says, I won't do this and the devil tempts him in different ways. And so we see as we go through the book of Matthew that Jesus is the true Israel. He is the truly repentant Israel. And so Jesus inherits the blessing of God. Jesus' obedience to the path that the Father had marked out before him meant that he walked that path in a way that none of us ever did. But when he walked that path, he brought the blessing of God. He was the true man living in true submission to God the Father. Jesus is the true Israel. He inherits the blessing. But he just didn't do this for himself. When Jesus comes, he lives the holy life. He walks the path perfectly that God has put before him, not for himself alone, but for us too. 
so that as we join ourselves to Jesus, we join ourselves into that repentant Israel. We join ourselves into that humanity that lives for God. We join ourselves into a new Adam, not an Adam of failure, but an Adam of obedience. And the blessing that God had promised to that obedience comes to us. This is the new message. This is why God needs so many prophets for this day because this is the deliverance that God is bringing. Jesus and the gospel message is similar to Joel but it's the fulfilment of where Joel was going as well. Not just that you must repent but that the Lord has saved. And that's a great thing, isn't it? See, the great thing about the Christian message, which I think it has as an advantage over other religions, is that we can look at our sins square in the eye and be honest with them, be honest about how they disqualify us, but yet we still know that God is good, yet we know that God has done something for us and that's what we hold on to. And so we do repent, that's the message of the prophets, but we also know that the Lord delivers, that the Lord has brought deliverance on Mount Zion. And this is why God needs all these preachers. God needs all these prophets. This is why the Holy Spirit has been poured out on all God's people, as I'm sure you're familiar, in uh, Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples and they preach the gospel to all the nations who had gathered in Jerusalem. And from there they then go out to all the other nations and as a result we've even received the gospel here in Tasmania, an awful long way from the land of Israel. Now, God has given you his spirit to be part of this mission. God has got a word for this world. And the word is, repent and I have saved. And this is the mission that we're to be involved in. This is why God has poured out his spirit on on us. So that we can take this gospel message to those around us. Because we've got the Spirit of God, we're not alone. You may feel intimidated and scared to speak to your friends, to mention that you're a Christian, to bring a Christian perspective on something, but God is with us. Sometimes we fear people more than we fear God. We need to fear God's judgment that we've been reading about. We need to take that seriously and fear it. We shouldn't be fearing people above Our God, we should be speaking as the prophets did, this message of God. You might say, well, I don't know enough. Certainly as Christians, we can all learn more. But God can use you where you're at and with what you know to speak to those around you. And you also have the Holy Spirit who will give you words at the right time. And we need to trust God in that. We need to trust that as he is sending us out as his prophets into this world and we all do it in different ways but that we all do do it because God has given us his spirit to do this. And so I want to encourage you to rely upon the spirit of God, to trust that God is with you, to pray as Paul did that God will give you the words to speak and to fear God more than you fear men and to take this great message of Jesus and the salvation that he has brought, this perfect 
righteous man and the, the blessings of God that he has now got and gives to those who come to him. I pray that you'll take that message to those around us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this beautiful part of Joel, Joel chapter 2. We thank you how it puts before us your righteousness and your requirements and how it clearly spells out to us our need for salvation. And we thank you, Father, that your son Jesus has come and fulfilled all of these things. Thank you that he is the righteous Israelite, that he is the true man. And Father, we just bind ourselves to him. We put our faith in him. We, uh, we drink his blood. We eat his flesh. We join ourselves to him. And we rejoice, Father, that we can know that we're saved. We can know that you have called us because of the great things you have done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.